Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we find ourselves. We're going to end up our time through 1 Thessalonians this morning as we complete this beautiful letter that I have so enjoyed as you're finding that. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, please keep that Bible as our gift to you. And I think you'd be really helped if you actually had the Bible uh, on your lap open. We have a lot of scripture to read today, but I think you would be really helped to, as much as you're able, to open it up and to follow along yourself and to become familiar with, with your own Bible. As you're finding that, let me just mention a couple things. First of all, um, uh, we, we as a staff just want to thank you for your patience this summer as we have been renovating the building. A couple times it's been really dusty in here. And remember that a couple months ago there was like that brick wall over there, that um, cinder block, and you guys were wondering what's going on. And by the way, none of you should be like witnesses for a crime scene because you haven't even noticed that we built a baptismal. Nobody's mentioned it. You've, okay, Mike Hands, no, nobody else has mentioned it. I, a, couple, I, a couple ladies that are like really integral parts of this church, we were in the sanctuary the other day, I was showing them some stuff, and they, they were like, oh my gosh, what's that? Oh, it's just been here for the past four weeks, sister. They didn't even know. So anyway, there's a permanent baptismal there. We're looking forward to being able to do that next time. The kids' rooms next week that we're going to open up are going to be just a great joy. But you guys have done a sneaky theme, thing this summer. Generally... Church is sort of like the attendance goes down in the summer because everybody goes off and does stuff and posts pictures on Facebook that make the rest of us jealous about how you go to the beach every weekend. Well, evidently, maybe you've been getting convicted about that, and we've like grown this summer. And so um, then when all the beachgoers come back in September, we're, I don't know, we're, we've got some things to think about and work through, but we just appreciate your attitude and how gracious you've been. Maybe it's because you haven't even noticed, like the baptismal, I don't know. But I can't wait for next week for you to check your kids into the rooms, um, bear with us, and maybe some logistical stuff. And uh, boy, what a, what a privilege to be, to be together as a family of God, making much of Jesus, um, seeing families grow. Uh, just, just, you guys are, I, I just love you. Thank you for how good you've been. Okay, before we get into First Thessalonians, next week, we're going to take a break. Robert is going to preach a standalone message, um, and so that'll be next week. And then after that, we're going to get into, for this fall and probably even past Christmas, I don't know, we'll see, we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So you can begin to read that, just an absolutely beautiful portion of Scripture. Can't wait to work through that with you, and we'll start that in a couple weeks. All right. Well, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28 as we end up in this beautiful letter. Today, a couple months ago when we were thinking about what book should we, should we work through, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do 1 Thessalonians is because I think it hits on some categories of the Christian life that I think are just really important for a Christian and a church corporately to understand. And one of them is the doctrine of sanctification. Now, this is a, a sort of theological word about, and, and it, the word sanctification means how Christians grow, the, the process of once you've been born again, 
then what does the rest of the Christian life look like? And that, that word, that theological term is sanctification. And this, a text that we're going to read today is one of the, the hallmark texts in the whole Bible on sanctification. So we've creatively entitled this message sanctification. So we had to think about that one a lot. So let me read and then pray. And then as I, after I pray, we're going to work back through, and I think there's four truths that I want us to see from this text, from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 28, ending Paul's letter to this church that he only spent about a month with, but so much fruit came as a result of it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. There's our word, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, uh, this truth that Paul writes about, this idea that you have promised to sanctify your people completely and that you will be faithful to do it is one of the great promises and great encouragements in all of the Bible. And we need it. We need to hear these words. We need to We need to unpack this beautiful truth because we are people that are often beaten down by the world around us, a culture that is against you and your reign, and we are still plagued and vexed by our flesh and our sin that tugs at us. So Lord, we need need the truths of this doctrine of sanctification to strengthen us and put steel in our spine and, and grit and to give us grit. And Lord, there are people in this room who are not yet trusting in you that need to see the beautiful promise, the beautiful, beautiful promise of the Christian life that you save people by your grace, that you empower people by your grace to live for you, and that you promise to bring your people safely home. So, Lord, I pray that any unbelievers present would see this, that you would give them eyes to see, and that they would be captivated with the beauty, the surpassing worth of Jesus, and that it would overtake their hard hearts, and you would give them faith so that they can put their hope and faith and trust in Jesus, that you would save them today. Lord, do all these things for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, for our collective growth in Christ, so that we together as a local, imperfect, rugged, dusty, local church can be a better representation of the gospel to an onlooking world that needs to see Jesus. Lord, would you do these things? We pray, we, we pray, we plead for you to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get into these four truths, we need to distinguish between two theological terms that I think are just absolutely essential. Okay, so this is going to be kind of like a, uh, a doctrinal Sunday. Now, don't, um, don't think that uh, that's a bad thing. Doctrine is a good thing. Paul writes to a young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. We say this a lot. All of us have a doctrine. 
Maybe your doctrine is that you don't think doctrine's important. Well, that's your doctrine, and it's a stinky one, right? So, <laughs> that's a neat word, stinky. It, but you have a doctrine. So if you're going to have a doctrine, which is just a set of beliefs upon which you're navigating through life, you might as well have the right doctrine, right? The biblical doctrine of what God has done through Christ for his people to redeem them for himself. So we need to understand before we get into understanding sanctification, the difference between the beginning of the Christian life, what happens then, and then the rest of the Christian life, because that's what sanctification is. It is the process of the Christian life after salvation, whereby the Christian, the believer in Jesus, is made more and more like Christ until they die when they are perfected and glorified and and made completely right, free of sin and all the effects of it. So what's the difference between what happens at the very beginning of the Christian life, which is justification, and sanctification? So justification is this theological word that means what God has done to us completely independent of anything in us, right? It is this work that God does. It's a one-handed work of God, not something that we cooperate with, but something that God does outside of us, to us, completely without us being involved, to make us right with Him. In fact, we've sung about it, We've read about it already today. It is this idea that we all, as mankind, start our lives dead in sin. We are all descendants of the same faucet, and that faucet is our first parents, Adam and Eve, who, because of their rebellion against God in the garden in Genesis 3, polluted the whole human race. And the Bible says in Romans 5 verse 12 that this pollution is sin, and from that sin came death, and we are all spiritually dead, which means that we are separated from God, unable to do anything to make ourselves right or justify ourselves before a holy and righteous creator God. And so, the good news of the gospel is not you need to do better but that God has done something to his people to make them right with him. And that's what we've sung about. This is the truth of Romans chapter 4. Let me just read this beautiful verse. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It says now uh, to the Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, in other words, the guy who doesn't do anything to make himself right with God, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the point there that Paul is making is that we are dead in our sins. We don't work. We can't make ourselves right with God. And the very faith that we have to exercise in God, actually if we read other parts of the scripture, is actually a gift from God in and of itself. And the very faith that God gives us in our dead state then, because he makes us alive, we then exercise in Jesus, and so we then are justified by faith through Jesus, by grace alone. That happens to us completely from the outside. You may say, wait a minute, we, we exercise faith, but even the faith that we exercise is a gift given to us from God, so it's nothing that we do. That's justification. We don't contribute to it at all. What we're going to look at today then is sanctification, where we as Christians do and must actually work it out and do something. Now the danger is, is if we mix up justification, the reason I'm sort of being very 
intentional about mixing up those two is that if we blur the lines between what God has done to justify us completely apart from anything that we've done and sanctification, which we're going to look at today, which we have very real responsibilities to do things with, if we blur the lines between those two, then we will start to think that we, if we think that sanctification and justification are kind of blurred together, we will think that the work that we are commanded to do in Scripture in sanctification is something that contributes to our justification, which is false. Do you see the, do you see the very important line there? There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. But because we've been made right with God through grace alone, through his sovereign work, now we are enabled to be part of the process of sanctification. So with that intro in place, let's look at truth number one that I think this text points us to in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 28, especially verse 23, where he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So truth number one is that sanctification, this idea that we progressively become more and more like Jesus through the Christian life, begins at conversion. It begins at conversion. And it's necessary for us to realize that when we are born again or when we are justified, when we trust in Christ, when we see him and believe in him, we are giving evidence that God has caused us to go from death to life, right? So this is really important that you see this. It's not like we were dead and we figured it out and then we exercised faith, and then God made us alive. No, we were dead in our sins. God made us alive, and as a result of the fact that we are now alive, we can exercise faith in Jesus. It's kind of like, I think this is a wonderful picture for what happens at salvation and justification. It's kind of like what happens when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead, right? He's dead. And Jesus walks up outside the tomb of Lazarus. He's so dead. Say it with me, boys and girls who memorized this in VBS in, in, you know, in 1970. He's so dead that the Bible says in the King James Version that he stinketh. All right, good. You guys are with me. Illustrating the point that Lazarus is dead, Jesus comes up, and he isn't looking for anything in Lazarus to make him worthy of resurrection or resuscitation. He commands a dead Lazarus to come forth. So he gives Lazarus the very thing that he needs, which is life. And with that life comes faith. And with that faith, he can now respond to Jesus' command. And so he gives a dead heart new life. He takes an old heart of stone. We sang about it. And those aren't just words made up by a a songwriter, that's reflecting the truth and the promise of God in the new covenant promised hundreds of years ago in Ezekiel 36 or 37 where he says that I will take your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. What is God saying there through the prophet? He's saying that you're dead. There's nothing you can do. I will give you a new heart and make you alive. And now this new heart with that new heart, not only comes the ability to have faith in Jesus and to see him, that's salvation, but with this new heart comes what? New desires. A new 
longing to not chase after the things that we once chased after that were counterfeit joys, but a new heart. So let's, let's just look at the implications of this new heart in Romans chapter 6, which, by the way, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. I know I say that a lot. We've been doing a men's Bible study here on um, Tuesday mornings and working through this doctrine of sanctification, and I know a couple months ago we went through Romans 8, and I talked about how Romans 8 was the most important chapter in the whole Bible. Romans 8 is the most important chapter ever written. I stand by those words, but Romans 6 is just a notch below. It's so good. It's just, oh my gosh. So Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, Paul is meditating on the implications of the fact that God has made you alive by faith in Christ. He justified you. He gave you a new heart. You're alive. Now what are the implications of that? Are we going to sin so that grace may abound? In other words, the argument is, well, now since God has justified me, since I've been made right with him, I can just kind of do whatever I want now, right? No, Paul says emphatically, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, so important. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved by sin. So the, what happens in salvation is we, we are transferred masters. We go from the, being a slave to sin to being a slave of Christ, to being a slave of righteousness. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, of course, we know that that doesn't mean that we will no longer struggle with sin because we're going to read a verse here in Romans chapter 7 that will crush that idea. But it means that we are no longer enslaved. We're now alive and where we were once bound to follow sin, we are now empowered and enabled for the Christian life to fight against sin. And praise God, there's coming a day when we will finally and fully be free of sin and that's glorification. Can't wait for that day. But we are now free from the tyranny and the mastership, which I believe is a made-up word, but I think you understand what it means, the mastership of sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves, or the old King James Version, and since we're in the Deep South, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that the call to worship when Kwame read from Ephesians 1 verse 3 through 10 and then he prayed and he, he was in his prayer uh, using the language of Colossians 3 that says we're hidden with Christ. That's what Paul is saying there is because Christ died to the penalty of sin. He didn't sin because Christ died for us and then was raised in victory over sin. We now, because we are in Christ, share that new life and that new desire. So the point is that we need to see is that sanctification, our new ability because of the new birth, begins at conversion. And this is the mark of true 
salvation. This is an absolutely essential mark of the reality and truth of salvation is that we are now empowered, again not perfectly, but we are empowered to fight sin and to live for God and to obey Him, whereas before we were not. That's why, by the way, did, it was, this was certainly my experience, that's why oftentimes some of the most miserable people are new Christians. Because there's like this little euphoria kind of where you first like, oh, I, I think I first understood the gospel and see and taste in Jesus. And like there's this kind of, kind of honeymoon happiness. And then you sort of settle into life. And then, because now you're actually alive to God, your sin becomes more real, and it's even more of a struggle, and you're like, oh, gosh, I am a complete... Ah, anyway. I almost disqualified myself there. I'm a complete train wreck. And you actually strangely become discouraged, but, but in a paradoxical sort of way, that's actually a sign of life. Because you're now miserable with the sin that used to enslave you, and now, remember, justification is an instant single act. Sanctification is a process. So it's like you're, you're, un, you're, you're, you're wrestling the grip of the old man that was holding you down, and now, because you're alive, you actually notice it. Isn't that weird how that works? So have have grace and patience with young Christians who are miserable because they need encouragement. That is a critical time, right? It's like a baby laying on a table, man, right after. You wouldn't just leave the baby alone. You come along and you feed that kid, yeah? You swaddle him and change his diaper and other stuff, right? It's messy work. So sanctification begins at conversion. Of course, this is not to say that we are not that we are perfected in any way. I mean, come on, Romans 7, verse 15, just one chapter over from Romans 6. And I believe, for those of you that are savvy to this little theological debate about Romans 7 as to whether or not Paul is talking about his present experience in the Christian life or if he is referring to his life before he was a Christian, I think clearly that he is referring to his present life. It's the experience, I think, of all Christians He says in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions. Not all the time, but at times implied in that. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And I think that 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 is a that's true about the Christian life often. But let's remember, sanctification begins at conversion. So one implication before we move on is that we cannot say that we are truly born again unless there are signs of life. Again, this doesn't mean that we will be completely free from sin. But if a person says that they are trusting in Christ, but they are continuing to live in their old ways of life without any desire to work and fight against that and to confess their sin and to be in community with other Christians, they are self-deceived and not truly born again. Friends, that's why the right preaching of the gospel, that's why involvement in a church where people will hold you accountable is so important because it is so easy easy to self-deceive, especially in maybe the Bible Belt South where people just sort of grow up thinking they're right with God because, because of maybe some family connection. No, we're right with God because he's justified us and because we see, we will know we are Christians by our love, by our love, as the song goes. Well, what's that 
that little chorus getting at, we will know we are Christians by the fact that we love Jesus now and not our sin, and the life of growing in Christ will be a struggle. Okay, I spent too much time on that. That's truth number one. Sanctification begins at conversion. Truth number two that I think we see, see in this text about sanctification is that sanctification is a process that continues throughout life. So let me read verse 23 again from our text. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, or another translation says, through and through. So there's this implied idea of this process. And may your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So a couple other scriptural references to just lock us into this idea that sanctification is not immediate, although it begins at conversion, but it's this process. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So there's clearly this process that Paul is talking about where it's one degree of glory to another. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, maybe Paul, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So holiness there is just another word to describe conformity to Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, strive for it. Philippians 2, a a wonderfully important and I think wonderfully encouraging um, text of of Scripture on this idea that sanctification is progressive. The Christian life is progressive. It's rugged. It's two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. It's this progressive journey. Paul says this in Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I roll up my sleeves. I, I I fight. Like it's, it's, I'm gritting my teeth. I'm going after it. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Oh, man, that's a, let's just stop there for a second. Some, some Christians just need to forget what lies behind. You just need to forget I think some Christians, I've said it before, and I'm going to mess up this movie reference. I'm going to get all sorts of texts and emails from you guys who are these little geeks who watch Lord of the Rings and all this kind of stuff, but I'm going to, I'm going to venture into this, this, these waters regardless. It's like that creepy little guy, Gollum or Smeagol or whatever he is, who's chasing the ring down into a dark cave. And I think some Christians are like that little creepy creature who are so obsessed with like, and I don't know, maybe it's because we don't really understand justification. And maybe, see, maybe we think that we need to bring our feelings of guilt to sort of pacify the holiness of God. And so we hold on to our own sin. I know what Jesus has done on the cross to atone for the most wicked of people, but you don't know what I did, Brad. No, what I did requires me to pay the penance of guilt. And so I'm going to hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to live in a dark cave and hold on to my precious. Right? And say, no, no. 
The gospel, Jesus, he can atone for the sin of wicked mass murderers. Ted Bundy can come to true faith maybe at the end of his life, but you don't know what I did. Friends, that is something that this text just smashes. Forget it like, forget it like Jesus died for it. Your sin is not more powerful than the work of the eternal Son of God and His victory over it. Selah. All right. Where was I? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And oh, by the way, I mean, come on, let's not beat each other up like we all, like, don't we all need help forgetting it, you know? Like, we're all on this road march, right? And the company commander has decreed that this road march, that we don't have to carry a rucksack. Come on. You know what I'm saying? I know that actually never happens in the real army, right? I can see you guys are like, what? No, 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 that, that is a hypothetical impossibility. But run with the analogy for a second. Imagine if we had a formation in the morning and the company commander said, all right, boys, we're going to take a 12-mile rucksack march up the hill. Or, I'm sorry, boys, we're going, to take, we're going to take a march up the hill. No rucksacks today. And then one of your boys shows up and he's loaded down with a rucksack, any good friend would say, hey, Jack, <laughs> what are you doing, man? Leave that junk behind. We don't, you, the, the journey is already going to be uphill. Don't carry an extra 80 pounds, knucklehead. But, but some of us insist, some of us just insist on carrying a rucksack filled down with bricks, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. So let's help each other put down the unnecessary baggage of sin that we covet over. I press on, verse 14, to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. So there's just clearly, sanctification is a, prog- is a progressive work throughout the Christian life. So just a couple implications before we move on to truth three, the, the third truth, is be encouraged. Like, be encouraged. <laughs> and be, let's be gracious with one another because the Christian life is full of, of just ebbs and flows. I was sitting with a, a, a young couple uh, this week in my office and uh, they've gone through, not because of anything in their lives, but they've just, they've gone through a very difficult, no, not because of anything sinful in them or any bad decision on their part, but they've gone through a very difficult six months. And I said to them, but you know what, brother and sister, like, through this all, you guys have grown, right? God has taken this difficult situation that you've been in, and he's used it for your good. You have grown. There's a, a process that God has used, even difficult in trial. So be encouraged, Christian, that, that life is full of, of these difficult situations where we grow in. Another implication from this is just that the the only way you can really do this is when you're in close proximity to other believers and God has ordained a a way for you to be close to other believers and it's the local church. You just have to be known. You have to be part of it. You have to commit to it. And and, and I think the local church, Reynolds used to say this a lot, the local church, being close to other Christians, is like saddling up next to sandpaper, right? And, you know, we're all like rough-cut pieces of wood, and everybody around us is like a 60-grit sandpaper. 
And that's just how God smooths us out. And if you run from the fact that you don't want to be around a bunch of jacked up people, which by the way, you're also jacked up, or maybe you have kept the church at a distance because you were hurt in the past, and now you, let's go back to this Gollum analogy. You are cherishing this painful experience that you had in church long ago And now the defining thing about your life right now and your ability to connect with this local church or some other local church, wherever it may be where the gospel is preached, we're not competing for Christians here, we're just trying to glorify God. The the defining thing about you is, oh, but I I was hurt, but I was hurt. Yeah, you, you may have well been hurt very badly, and I'm not minimizing that at all. But by you keeping everybody at arm's length because of that past pain is short-circuiting the means of grace that God gives for your sanctification. So let's live close. Let's know each other. Let's commit to local churches. Let's join them. Let's serve them. Let's plop our lives down in the middle of them and all the muck and the mire and the dirtiness and the hypocrisy and the failure, failure that's going to happen and poor leadership and people will disappoint you. Have you thought about that God uses all of that imperfection because you're also imperfect to be the means by which he grows you as you deal with that? That was a whole lot better and the only guy that got it was Scotty. You guys should have all said amen to that. So we should have patience with each other. All right, truth number three. Now, this is important for us to see. Sanctification is a cooperative effort between us and God. So this is where some people, especially you reform types like I am, I mean, I I believe in the sovereignty of God and all this, and I mean, I, I, I stake my life on those truths. This is where some of you might get a little nervous. So let me define what I mean by cooperative. Cooperative does not mean that the way man and God work together in a person's sanctification or the way a person and God works together is equal or even in the same way. But it means that because God has justified us and made us alive, now there's a whole Bible full of imperatives and commands that God has ordained as means by which we must necessarily respond to and follow and obey our part, whereby God then uses that to be part of the process of our sanctification. So here's the hallmark verse, Philippians 2. you got to know this one, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. This is an imperative. This is a command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, this is God's part, which rests, it's the foundation. It's happened before and it's in a still. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So clearly in that verse, there are two people working. There's God working, which is primary and foundational and beforehand and in and its promises. But he has said, because I've made you alive, now breathe is essentially what he's saying. Because I've made you alive, now breathe. That's the cooperative effort between man and God. In one sense, this, this cooperative effort, is, is, it's passive. It's, it reminds me of Mark chapter 4 where 
Jesus uh, offers this parable of the kingdom, and he says that the parable, uh, he says that the kingdom of God is like a sower who throws out seed. He's like a farmer who throws out seed, and, and then he goes to sleep at night, and it grows, and he knows not how. So there's this kind of mysterious way that when we just sort of put ourselves and when God makes us alive and we put ourselves in the life of the local church, we start hearing the Bible preach, we read it for ourselves, we pray, just in a way that we don't really aren't see ourselves actively doing anything, we just sort of grow. God does it in us. But there's more to our sanctification than that. Than that. It's not just our passive receiving, but it is our active doing that God commands. So let's go to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll, we'll see this truth. Colossians 3, super important chapter on sanctification. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if you were justified, seek, like do something, seek, because you're alive, breathe. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set, that's an imperative, do something. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. How do you do that? By, by communing with God through his word, by by, by disciplining yourself to have a system and a thoughtful way about which you are approaching God's truth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what we referenced earlier when we said Kwame was praying that for us, that we would realize that we're hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, this is a command. This isn't something that God says has happened to you. This is something that has, he says you must do. Verse 5, put To death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists off several categories of sin. It's not an exclusive list of all the things that plague us, but it's what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in this situation, and it certainly applies to us. So put to death, take a sword, and chop off the head of these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, with, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So you, we could go on and read through the rest of Colossians 3, but do you see this clear sense that, okay, God has done this in you. Now you must do something in response to the life that you now have. And we could spend all Sunday, we won't, we could spend all Sunday just thinking about and meditating on about how we should do that. Just a couple thoughts. God gives us these means of grace by which we are enabled to obey these commands. He gives us His Word that we must read, we must have a plan, we must think about it, we must fight to read God's word. He gives us prayer, we can go to him through Jesus. We, he gives us the life of the local church. We don't have time to do a whole treatise on the spiritual disciplines and how we can be active in our sanctification, but just, d- dear friend, if you are a person who is, you think that you're truly trusting in Christ, and you find yourself just sort of stuck in spiritual, intima- uh, in spiritual infancy, like right now the Holy Spirit, I believe, is speaking to you saying, do something about it. And maybe that thing that you need to do is to connect with somebody in this room before you leave and say, help me, mature Christian, grow in 
Christ. Sanctification is a cooperative effort between us and God. Finally, fourth truth, and we'll end with this. God uses, and this is beautiful, God uses sanctification to deepen our joy and display the gospel. We, as we've been going through uh, this doctrine and thinking about it in our men's uh, study on Tuesday mornings, uh, a question has come up, and I think it's a, a good question. A couple guys have asked, and we've just kind of kicked around thoughts to this. Okay, we, get, we see the gospel, we see it's all God, but uh, like, do you ever just feel like, God, why, why have you left me here to struggle? Like, couldn't you just zap me and make me, like, couldn't you just do like, a, a, like some teleportation spiritually where I could just finally be free of all this stuff? Why, why is Romans 7.15, the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I should do, I don't do, why is that still sort of true in my life? God, couldn't you just, just for a little while, just sort of press the fast forward button and make me zip through some of this rugged stuff? I think it's a valid question. And I think that the reason why God, just, a, just my speculation, is the reason why God allows us to walk this rugged path of sanctification and doesn't just like Star Trek beam us up, Scotty, right when we are saved. I probably messed that up too and I'm going to get some emails about that one. But the reason why he leaves us here is I think twofold. One, it's to deepen our joy. So when God makes us alive, instead of just zapping us into glory, we then have to fight, and we are face to face with the old man that used to enslave us, and the prince of the power of the air, meaning the devil who, whose child we used to be. And now we fight him, and now because we've tasted the joy of following Jesus, and because we're still face to face with this world in our flesh, these remaining 40, 50, 60, 70 years is deepening our gratitude and joy. And what does God do with Christians whose joy is deep and their gratitude runs thick and rich? He uses their sanctification. I heard Doug Duncan say this once, and I haven't forgot it. He uses our sanctification, the rugged process, as the means that he uses to bring justification to other people. So we live lives with Dead people who are still dead in their sins, enslaved, and he uses us as a kind of slow, progressive object lesson being lived out in the face of people that God intends to save, and he uses our life of turning from these old ways and this slow process of preferring the surpassing worth of Jesus, and he uses our rugged lives and our humility and our repentance and the slow picture of our growth as the means, as the beautiful thing which he uses, listen to this, this is so good, that he uses to awaken people so that they see the surpassing worth of following Christ. That's why he's left you here. That's why we are alive. So that our sanctification would deepen our joy, which would make us more humble, more worshiping, more glad, more joyful. And then he would use that to display his gospel to an onlooking world. So let's live our lives. Let's link arms. Let's be gracious. Let's dig in. And let's know this promise, friends. Young man, when you, you, you are fighting sin, 
and you feel like you're making no progress, you need to zero back in on 1 Thessalonians 23 and 24 especially, where there's this promise that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He has guaranteed, he has begun a process, Philippians 1.6, I have begun a good work in you and I will complete it. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. And that guarantee is not meant to cause us to let go and say, oh, well, God's going to do it. I can just do whatever. That guarantee is meant to put steel in our spines so that we can stare this world. We can stare our flesh. We can stare sin that used to enslave us. We can stare it in the eye and say that the God of all the universe has promised that I will eventually be completely and finally free of you. So get away from me. Luther used to do that. He used to taunt his own sin. Right? He would just, he would smack talk the devil. I mean, you know, that was Luther. He was a little crazy. But the point is, is that be encouraged, Christian. Be encouraged, young man that's fighting sin. Be encouraged, dear sister, who has a terrible self-image. Be encouraged with that thing that you're continually fighting against. Be encouraged with those around you who you're so frustrated with. God has promised. He has promised. He who calls you, work it out, do it, fight, kill, slay the sin, do this thing. But behind it all, underneath it all, in it all, over it all, the promise is he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And let that put steel in your spine. So this Tuesday when you're tempted, you can say, no, I am, in, I am caught up in this unstoppable force of sovereign grace that has promised that he will bring me safely home. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, old man. Oh, you see how beautiful that is? Let's, like, let's, let's, let's lean into that. Let's lean into that. If you're a Christian, like, let's, be, oh, let's lean into that. If you're not a Christian and maybe God has shown you that you're not in this past hour, oh, don't overthink it, man. I'm not asking you to check your brain at the door. What I'm saying to you is you're not saved by your intellectual attainment of facts that empirically make a point. You are saved by the object of your weak faith, which is the strong Savior Jesus. Faith is not the figuring out of empirical evidence. Faith is beholding despite doubt. So you need to not do anything. See, see, don't mix sanctification and justification. Don't think, oh man, I was moved by that. This guy's a little crazy, but I sort of think what he was saying. I, I hear it. Boy, I need to do something now to get my life right with God. No! You can't do anything. All you can do is look away from yourself into him and he gives you the very ability to do that. So if you're seeing Jesus, if you're thinking, is this true? I want to I wanna believe in him. Friends, that's evidence that he's making you alive, that he's breathing life into you. Don't run and do and commit to a list. Look and behold and believe. Breathe. And the only way you can breathe is that if he's made you alive and so if you're breathing right now, don't run off to do something. Behold the glory of the risen king who's conquered sin and death and has absorbed God's punishment for you and has made you alive. So believe now, friend. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for these dear friends. I love them. I love this church. Lord, shed us from Bible Belt religiosity. Free us from nominal Christianity. Free us from mediocre satisfaction with our life in Christ. And roll up our sleeves. Cinch up our boots. Put steel in our spine. Remind us that we've got work to do to become like who you've called us to be. But behind it all, you who promised are faithful and you will do it. And let that be fuel for our fight against sin because we know that you will bring us safely home. And Lord, for my friend in this room who's not yet trusting in Christ, I I pray that they would just behold the beauty of the gospel and that they would rest and run and fall into the arms of sovereign grace and put their hope not in their morality or their commitment to do better, but that they would put their hope in what Jesus has done on the cross in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, to bear the punishment that should have been theirs, and in his glorious, victorious resurrection, where now he is alive, and because he's alive, he can give life. Lord, I pray that that person would put their hope in Jesus, and if they're doing that, That gives evidence that you have made them alive and now, finally, for the first time, they can begin to live with you because they have a new heart. Lord, do that for people in this room who have not yet trusted in Jesus. I pray in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.